Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest. Whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander, we hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but uh, often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK-centric, on the big issues of the day. So welcome back. We're heading off into the uh, summer holidays. It's the last week of July. And as expected, we're recording this podcast in a week when the Federal Reserve, the world's most important central bank, has raised interest rates again, but only by a quarter of a percentage point. And they're still making noises about how they may need to do more still, even though I think the markets have reached a point where most participants, I think, think that they're probably, if not already, at the end of their rate hiking cycle, at least pretty close to it. Uh, would that be your assessment, Peter? Morning, Jonathan. And I think it's an opportune moment to be discussing this. It would be my assessment. My assessment is nearly always the same as yours. Not always, but certainly on the important points like what we're going through now. We have, of course, only had one central bank rate hike, which was the Federal Reserve yesterday. We've got the European Central Bank today and we've got the Bank of Japan tomorrow. I don't expect a lot of difference, certainly not between the Fed and the ECB, in terms of actions, in terms of Fed speak and ECB speak, and in terms of the future, in terms of the fact that the head of the ECB and the head of the Fed, they don't have any magic insight, no more than we do. And so they're also navigating in uncharted waters. The Bank of Japan is slightly different. We can leave that for another day. And that will be visible tomorrow. They're much more opaque, the Japanese, than their Western counterparts. I think the big question here for us investors, whether it's in bonds or in shares or in anything else, is have the Fed, who are clearly the most important central bank, the leading central bank, have they achieved that which seems unachievable or always has seemed unachievable, namely a soft landing? Because if they have achieved a soft landing, which is described as continuing, if moderate, economic growth, at the same time as inflation having been more or less conquered, if they've achieved that, then it's very much a feather in the cap and would serve to justify the performance of share prices over the last six to nine months. That's my reading. Yes, I think that's probably right. The soft landing is a bit like a kind of unicorn, really. It's a largely mythical experience. There have been a couple of soft landings in the past, to be fair. Uh, But I don't think there's ever been a soft landing when the normal indicators, should we say, have been quite so clear about the likelihood that we will actually have a, a harder landing than a soft landing. We should be careful about defining our terms here. But yes, I mean, I think if you accept that the uh, the Federal Reserve has been in a difficult position, uh, partly of their own making, but they've had to deal with some very dramatic circumstances, COVID and the war in Ukraine, which have complicated the fact and, and may mean, uh, because they've been such exceptional events, that may mean that the kind of normal indicators don't really apply because it's such an uncertain and different world that we don't quite know. We are navigating through a very difficult period. So it is certainly theoretically possible, I think, there is be a soft landing, which would confound many of the market observers that I talk to, very smart people, but they could easily be confounded. However, my own personal view is that I think they've taken the right decision to prioritize inflation over unemployment and uh, economic growth. And if they succeed, yeah, we'll have to give them a lot of credit. 
but I'm not convinced yet that that's the case. I mean, we're always dealing here with trying to analyze something contemporaneously when actually the indicators are either lagging or forward-looking. And therefore, we could be in this kind of sweet spot where inflation has come down in America to 3%, which is very impressive. But we're not sure whether it's going to stay there, whether it's going to bounce back up again or fall even further. So I'm afraid there's still a lot to play for. And I have to say my money is still on uh, us having a period of slow growth. I agree with you that we are definitely in a period of slow growth. I think that's slow growth at best, but you never know whether the effects of tightening monetary policy over the last year, which has been very aggressive all around, whether these effects still are going to find their way in the hard numbers in the next six months or even 12 months. There are a lot of protagonists who claim that monetary policy has a time lag before it is visible in the hard economic numbers. But of course, on that basis, you could go on and discuss what the future is going to bring forever. What I find most interesting, Jonathan, and I, I'm very keen to know your thoughts on this, is that if you go back to the famous, much referred to point in the last year, in October of last year, when the markets bottomed, and when, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, this was a screaming buy, of course, for all sorts of asset classes, and in particular for asset class that I favor, which is the quality growth asset class. If you think back to that moment, pessimism was at its most pronounced. And even those people who said, I'm not averse at all to being invested in shares, to be invested in stock markets, but I need more clarity. And I will come in when there is more clarity. My thinking at the time was, yes, fine. But when there is more clarity, the markets will be 25% higher than they are today. So the clarity argument is not necessarily the way that you can achieve good returns in the stock markets. And I'm surprised, well, I'm not surprised, actually, how this has played out once again from the moment of maximum pessimism until today. Very good returns have been made. What do you think of that clarity argument? You're obviously right in every sense, uh, not least because if everybody is very gloomy, then there's nobody left to sell and so on. And it's always the turning point. Uh, you have to know it is the point of maximum pessimism, of course. It could just be a point of great pessimism. It may not have quite reached the bottom. So you can't necessarily time it very carefully, but you're absolutely right. But now, according to all the surveys that I see, there's more optimism than pessimism now. And there's nothing like a bull market or a recovery in share prices to get people coming back and being more optimistic. So the question is, when does it reach an extreme? If it carries on, if this bull market carries on, the recovery in, in the stock market at least, if this does carry on, then we are going to get to a point where we'll have too many optimists and then we'll have another down wave. But you're absolutely right in historical terms. And I think it did also show up in the charts, which I look at last October. We did actually see that uh, there were opportunities in the equity market. And I, I think I certainly acknowledge that, but I didn't think it would be quite as protracted as it's proved to be. And, and of course, the market was right in the sense that the economic data has turned out to be better than most people were thinking at that time in terms of the rate at which inflation has come down uh, and the resilience of the US consumer in particular. So yes, the market, it's a classic story of how the markets behave. They confound the pessimists. And if you're brave enough to try and time it, you may have been lucky to time it precisely, but you certainly could have timed it uh, roughly anyway once that up leg gathered some momentum. No question about that. 
Of course, the alternative approach is to do what you hope your investors do, which is to do nothing. And in that case, you'll ride the waves and you'll ride the troughs and you'll come out ahead over time. So you don't necessarily need to do the timing in order to get good results. But if you're brave enough to try and you're right, then of course, you're going to get extra reward as well. If I could just then move on to this point, which is, so what are we going to read into what's happening in the bond market now? Because if it's true, we're going to get a soft landing. What does that imply for uh, what's going to happen to interest rates and bond yields? And since you mentioned October and the maximum pessimism, well, the US 10-year treasury is basically traded sideways since then. It certainly hasn't gone down, which is what a lot of people who did put the optimistic argument said it would come down. And the reason it hasn't come down, presumably, is not perhaps because people are doubtful that inflation will come down now, uh, but they're more concerned about the strength of the economy. And therefore, these interest rates are going to stay where they are for some time. If that's the case, that then has implications for investors trying to decide what to do as between bonds, equities and other asset classes. I was fearful that you would put your finger onto this particular point, because it's crucial. And as you know, as you well know, you and I for the last few years have always, I think, at every single discussion, brought in the bond markets into the discussion. Because we know, you and I, Moses and Methuselah, how important the bond markets are. They guide the share market and not the other way around. And I think investors would be wise to remember that iron rule. And so, yes, you're right. The bond yields have traded in a range, even though the range has been relatively wide. To confound or to confuse the argument even more is, of course, the yield curve. Because the inversion of the yield curve in the U.S., would signal stagnation of the economy accompanied by inflation, which is too high. And so the inflation worries are reflected in short-term bond yields and the stagnation expectations in the longer-term bond yields. And when that's inverted, it causes a lot of head-scratching. It causes a lot of problems for banks. And it is usually right in announcing stagnation at best and recession at worst. Well, it hasn't happened. The recession hasn't happened yet. And so I think that the bond markets, not only in terms of the absolute levels of yields, both at the short and at the long end, but also in terms of the inversion of the curve, the shape of the curve, I think something has to give there in the next six to 12 months. What it is exactly, I don't know. But what I've discovered recently, which I wanted to mentioned, because I think it's very, very important, is that if you go back to last year in the UK, when you had the gilts debacle as a result of poor, desperate Liz Truss's attempt to um, introduce growth into the UK economy, which had horrendous effects on the gilt market, we went through that in great detail last year. I think that there was a change of mentality by international central banks, especially obviously the Fed and the ECB, because they looked at the situation carefully and they needed to prevent that happening in their zones at all costs. And so it appears that as the liquidity of the economy has been pretty much shrinking in the last sort of 12 months and economic growth has slowed and all these things that we know, um, the central banks and especially the Fed have been quite busy behind the scenes in preventing the sort of UK gilts debacle that happened last year in September to prevent that from happening in their own markets. And so what they've been doing is that they have been quietly behind the scenes actually injecting money back 
So that whilst they were talking, the quantitative tightening, and whilst they were talking higher for longer, and whilst they emitted hawkish tones, what happened in the real world is that they actually supported the financial markets with liquidity. And so my conclusion to that is that when you have reduced liquidity in the economy, then that liquidity, which is real, finds its way back into the financial markets. So you can actually have quantitative easing and quantitative tightening taking place at the same time. Now, what I've just described is very high level, and the reality going into details is much more complicated, and that would merit a podcast in itself. But it is nonetheless important because it does indicate that the liquidity picture in financial markets is much better than we might think. And as liquidity gets drained away from the economy, it actually finds its way back through all sorts of ways into financial markets. And that is the result of the scare of Silicon Valley Bank, of the scare of the gilts market last year in the UK, which everyone noticed around the world, and which is something that the authorities and the central banks want to prevent happening in their own markets. And that's good. It is good, but of course, it also highlights the fact that they have concerns about the financial stability of the system, or the stability of the financial system, however you like to describe it. And I think the problem we now have is that if, for whatever reason, that liquidity has come back, as you say, it's helpful to keep the, the system going. But if interest rates are going to stay where they are, we've still seen a massive change in the if you like, the financial conditions of the world. It's not just liquidity, but we've got bond yields at 4% or 5% now uh, in the UK at the you know two-year short-dated end of the curve. And that means there's still a lot of pressures. If those interest rates stay there, the factors that cause the problems with the banks and so on, the fact that uh, private equity is going to be facing much higher financing costs, companies are going to be facing higher financing costs, they've managed to get through so far because it's all been quite dramatic and happened in a short period of time. But as people you know, have to refinance their debts, companies have to borrow more money. They, if those higher rates continue, that's going to leave a lingering pressure, if you like, on corporate behavior and corporate earnings in due course. And that so therefore will have a countervailing effect on the prospects of the stock market, for example. So uh, it's a complicated picture, as you say. The central banks are wrestling with this, uh, what we've called previously a trilemma, the, the problem of trying to preserve financial stability beating inflation and keeping unemployment low. Uh, and it's a very difficult thing to pull off. And I think that if they have succeeded, as you say, by they've been plugging holes, if you like, in the ship, the leaks in the hole. But to do that, they put some money back in. But it hasn't actually solved the long-term problem, which is that if we've got tighter financial conditions, that eventually is going to show up in corporate activity, in bankruptcies and things like that. So I think we have to watch out for that. We don't know where that's going to go. And that leads us straight to the big question, which has been sort of lingering over us for a long time, which is, are we actually in a Goldilocks scenario whereby inflation is conquered, the worst is behind us, monetary policy doesn't need to go up much more, maybe a little bit, but not much more. And therefore, we are faced with a situation where we will have a Goldilocks economy in the next few years. This is the positive if you like, scenario, or are we in a bull trap? And the arguments for a bull trap are the ones that you've just brought forward, that corporate credit costs are going to go up much more, and we haven't seen the worst of it by any means, and the worst of it is yet to come, and that needs to be reflected and therefore will be reflected 
in share prices, which have exploded in the last months and resulting in PE ratios and what have you being too high and higher than average. And therefore, you need to revert back to the mean. And so what I see here is these two arguments. Is Goldilocks or is it a bull trap? And the reason why this is a very important question is that if it's a bull trap, then you could very well see some serious stock market corrections in the next six to 12 months, accompanied by all the usual things. But if it's a Goldilocks scenario, then because we've potentially reached the end of an inflationary period and the beginning of a disinflationary period, it could mean that it's not only Goldilocks, but it's Goldilocks on steroids. And that is, I think, the very key issue here. I don't necessarily want to put my neck on the block. I say that before you ask, because I can see you sharpening your knife to ask me whether we're in the Goldenox or in the bull trap scenario. You can ask me that next time. But it's a very important moment. One mustn't lose one's cool here as an investor, because things are changing. There are a lot of moving parts, but they're moving quite rapidly now. And I think that in three months' time or in six months' time, we will have quite a different discussion from the discussion that we're having now. And I look forward to that, of course. We haven't yet mentioned, of course, one other factor in terms of the stock market, which has been what I can only call the AI mania that has affected the market. And this is very interesting because it does actually play into this whole issue, I think, in quite a significant way. One is you could just dismiss it at the fact that any kind of company that seems to be involved has any connection with AI, artificial intelligence has sort of taken off, the shares have shot up. Uh, everybody wants a piece of it. That could just be a kind of speculative thing with uh, the fact that people still have liquidity sloshing around, there's money around, and they're chasing this wonderful dream. Uh, or there could be some reality to it. In other words, it's not impossible that AI is going to have a dramatic impact on the world. It's, I'm sure it will have a dramatic impact. It may have a dramatic impact on the way that companies behave. It will have be disruptive. There will be winners and losers. Uh, it could be a really big thing. The question, of course, is whether that is actually priced in at the moment with some of the very lofty valuations that we're seeing for companies involved in, in AI. And of course, we'll cast one's mind back to the 2000 TMT bubble, which was curious because it was a, a mania. It was a speculative mania. We all know that. But of course, it didn't uh, disprove the fact that the internet has radically changed the way we live and the way that uh, companies perform. And it has you know, transformed their business practices in many ways. And yet, we come back always to this central point, which Alan Greenspan used to raise, which is the trouble with this is that this is not showing up in the productivity figures. The economy should be getting so much more productive because of these wonderful new things we have. The internet was a game changer, and AI will be a game changer. But is it actually going to be translated into better productivity, better quality of life, a better world, and so on, and a more efficient world? In which case, maybe some of these, if it happens very quickly, some of these prices might in due course be justified. So it's either a story that doesn't have any real value, or it's actually just telling us that there's something out there and the market is choosing to get quite excited about it. I think it's a story that has a lot of value, but I don't think it's a story that has an ending anytime soon. And I read a very interesting article the other day in one of the maybe Swiss newspapers or something, that artificial intelligence, which at the moment is decried as being doubtless efficient for the economy, but at the same time, very destructive of jobs. So the labor market is going to be severely hampered and a lot of jobs are going to be lost, whether it's in the medical field or the legal field or the accounting field, or you name it. 
maybe even journalists, I don't know. But I read a contrary article the other day that actually artificial intelligence will produce as many new jobs as it destroys old jobs. And I think for that very reason, it's simply much too early to tell what the effects of artificial intelligence are. I mean, if you ask people of our age, as I've been doing, whether they've checked out artificial intelligence and tried to understand it or use it, use it, the answer is not really. If you ask the younger people, have you used artificial intelligence? They look at me very politely and they say, of course, I've used it. It doesn't necessarily mean that they understand what it is and the, the various forms. And above all, one doesn't yet understand how reliable artificial intelligence is. I did a bit of checking on my own, more in the sort of personal sphere, and found out that there were some inaccuracies such that it is probably too early to conclude whether one can actually rely in one's profession or otherwise on what artificial intelligence is offering. If you're a doctor or a lawyer and you're tempted to shortcut via artificial intelligence, but you know that at the same time, this will have an effect on either your patient as a doctor or your client as a lawyer, then you might have to think twice and do a bit more digging. And I think that's where we are right now. We are the learning curve. It's quite a long way in the future anyway, before we can find out, as you say, even the answers to basic questions like that. And I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you're also right, though, of course, that looking back over the history of modern capitalism is that technology changes. They do always end up creating more jobs than they cost. There's always a painful adjustment process, unfortunately, in the way, but they always do in the long run. And, and if we think back, and it's not entirely fanciful to think that AI could be, as some have already said, the third industrial revolution or whatever you like to call it, that had a profound impact along with electrification and the automobile and the, to a lesser extent the internet. Uh, you know, really having a dramatic impact on the world and solving a lot of problems that we have. So it's not entirely fanciful, but I mean, it is certainly fanciful to think it's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> it's not going to happen for a long time, but that may be where people are heading. So it's just another twist into this whole story about the markets here and the miasma around there, the uncertainty about what's going to go on. So many things changing rapidly. Always difficult for people to adapt to that, whether you're an investor or a government or whatever. So... Yeah, it could be the start of a new golden age of capitalist society. It just doesn't feel like that quite at the moment, let's put it that way. <laughs> In the meantime, we have to uh, decide what to do with our money. The other fundamental question which we have talked about, and I think we just might finish on this, is it must have some impact. If you can get 5% on a short-dated government bond, which you can in the UK, in the US it's about 4% or something like that, 4 and a bit, and inflation has come down and is coming down, uh, the consequence of that is we're now facing positive real interest rates which we haven't seen for a long time. And that is a game changer for investors. It creates a, an alternative. You know, a lot of money, people will be putting money and institutions will be putting money into bonds now, which they have been avoiding. And that's going to change the dynamics for a lot of competing assets. I don't see there's any getting away from that, both in theory and in practice. You're going to see money. We've seen big money flows coming out of open-ended funds, for example. So it's going to change the game certainly if in the short term, until we, we do get more clarity about whether these bond yields are going to stay there and remain an attractive asset class again, if inflation is going to stay low, and it's going to be a competitor to all other kinds of assets. And that is a good thing. And it's not really theory versus practice. It's actually practice now. And I discovered something very interesting that uh, 
in Italy, for example, where there are a lot of savers, where the savers are much more widespread than in other countries, they have basically kept bond deals plateaued. They've kept prices where they are because they're constantly reinvesting in bonds. And if it's savers in one country, it's pension funds in another country, it's life insurance companies in the third country. My view, Jonathan, on a parting shot is that I completely agree with you. And I think that it is the first time that we've got real yields. I think that those yield chasers who are not interested in buying shares, that they have to buy bonds, I think they will buy bonds. They will support the bond prices. I know I've been wrong on this in the last couple of years. Um, you can point your finger at me quite rightly. But the point from which I was wrong was a much lower bond yield, let alone a real bond yield. So I think I quite agree with you. And I think that that will not only support bond prices, but it will also help to support share prices as a whole. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> well, let's hope that's the case. That sounds like a Goldilocks scenario to me. When we come back in September for the next podcast, we'll find out whether we've had uh, more of this kind of talk or whether we're, we've had some kind of summer crisis of some sort. They do sometimes happen in August. So who knows? We'll find out in due course. Thank you, Jonathan. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or M&M podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.